4: Thank you so much for joining us here on this incredible day. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Recent polls regarding marriage equality and LGBTQ rights show that more Americans are supportive today than ever in American history when it comes to the LGBTQ community. One can argue that television might have something to do with it. I mean, if you even take the case of uh, Proposition 8 here in California, the ban on same-sex marriage, someone like a Dustin Lance Black or a Rob Reiner might argue with you that they had a lot to do with that, which those two come from the very powerful Hollywood, as uh, you know, most of us know them as directors and screenwriters. Our next guest is David Bender. He's working on a project, a new documentary called Playing Gay, in which we'll talk about how TV might have influenced Influence, how people think, uh, about what they think of LGBTQ people and their support of it. David, welcome to the program.
3: Michelle, it's good to be here, and I would include radio influencing people as well. So thank you for what you do.
4: Ah, thank you so much. For some reason, when I think about talk radio, um, you know, who's always in the news these days? It's those uh, Christian right-wing radio guys who continuously make headlines by saying such horrible things about queer people. <laughs>
3: Well, I came. I came out of Air America, and although Air America did not last, it was like so many things—a great opportunity to to find uh, new talent and to provide paths for people who otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity. And one of those people is someone I, I I'm proud to call a friend and and who is involved in in my film playing gay, and that's Rachel Maddow,
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, who is the exact opposite of those crazy right-wing people yeah, right. it, <laughs> on radio and television. So we're, we're, we're very lucky to have some folks who have come out of uh, this medium. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Television has played a huge part in how we see ourselves in the LGBT community. I'm, uh, I'm going to venture a, a, a very safe guess that I'm older than you because <laughs> I can remember Uh, when we were invisible on television. The only images you could see in the 50s and 60s, actually really in the 60s, if there was an LG uh, BT character, and of course those names didn't exist, if there was a homosexual character, he or she was either an axe murderer or a tragic figure who had no choice but to take their life by the end of the show. That was the the future, uh, uh, according to writers, and, and in fact, it reflected society's view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the thing about television is that it, it is like a house of mirrors. It reflects and affects the object that it's looking at. And it wasn't until the 1970s that we started to have an effect and a reflection that was remotely positive. And, and that's really the, the core of Playing Gay. And, and uh, for people who want to know about it, playinggay.com, we're, we're talking about this, this film that I've been developing now for almost 20 years, first is a book now as a documentary, to tell this story of how, how that transformation took place really with some very brave people, and one of whom happened to have been a young actor named Rob Reiner, who you just mentioned, who was part of a show called All in the Family. And that show, uh, in its first season, 1971, had the first positive gay character ever on television, an episode written by the creator, Norman Lear. And uh, Rob Reiner was very much a part of that storyline. He challenged Archie about his homophobia, and it, it told a story that really resonated because no one no one had ever done that
4: before. And and I, I, I commend you absolutely for doing a project like this, and I can't wait for the documentary um, because, you know, Hollywood, you know, television, you know, movies, films, all of it, as you were talking about, it's like this reflection of us, uh, but the, it's also very complex. I mean, you know, Hollywood even today in 2015, we're still looking at, Things like, uh, you know, gender pay gaps. Uh, we're still talking about, you know, a lot of actors and actresses who are closeted and don't want to come out and fear that it would kill their careers. Uh, but, ha- you know, over time, and I wanted, I wanted to ask you about this, you know, about how reality TV might have influenced uh, also how, you know, what, what people think of LGBTQ people. Um, that that might have been the catalyst for change in something like television. What are your thoughts?
3: You're you're, again spot on. Each each iteration of this journey that we're on, all of us are on, including now where we're on with the transgender community, which is getting so much visibility, uh, even in this last few years. Shows like Transparent, Orange is the New Black, and obviously uh, Caitlyn Jenner, are are a, a brand new phenomenon could not have happened five years ago, did not happen five years ago. But with respect to reality television, uh, there's something that, again, I remember in pun intended real time, it was the real world. It was the third episode of real world, in right there in San Francisco, uh, Pedro Zamora, uh, a 20-year-old uh, HIV-positive man whose journey was documented, uh, became a hero to millions and millions of people for his courage. Uh, and and uh, I, I can remember so well watching that and thinking, this is changing hearts and minds. Uh, it is putting a, a human face on something that, that people were terrified of throughout the entire preceding decade. In fact, the President of the United States refused to even address it for the longest time. Uh, it, it was reality television that helped change that. So it, you're, you're, you're spot on. It, this is a part of what Playing Gay uh, will be about. And, and we're, By the way, just to be clear, this is a work in progress. Mm-hmm. The story is evolving because it, it is not settled. I'm, I'm still shooting this film, uh, doing interviews. I've interviewed uh, Norman Lear. I've interviewed Michael Douglas. Uh, uh, interviewed Wilson Cruz for my so-called life. Uh, Sheila Kuehl, a a hero of mine in fact a mentor of mine who uh, was a closeted actress back in the 60s and uh, pretty much lost her career because they discovered she was gay Mm -hmm. Uh, and and that was actually the word was she was too butch she just looked too butch so they, they decided no, we can't give her a series of her own she was very popular uh, and that story is in, in Playing Gay and we're, we're asking people actually to go to playinggay.com and help us. We've got a Kickstarter campaign and we can, uh, we, we have a lot of support but we could use everyone to sign on because this is our community telling our story, uh, and preserving our history.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating. This is such a fascinating topic. Michelle Meow on the phone with us is David Bender. We're talking about his documentary that he's working on, Playing Gay, um, in which, you know, we're talking about how television may have played a huge role in changing the hearts and minds of America over the past four decades when it comes to LGBTQ people. And by the way, uh, they have a Kickstarter up in which we just mentioned. We'll also post that up on our website and social media. Make sure you guys support this awesome project. You, it's a it's a fascinating topic because, you know, it's still evolving. Like you were talking about, it, even though we have more out characters on television, it's becoming quote-unquote popular, even trans, you know, people and their lives being told uh, today on, on television is becoming popular, but we still we still have a problem. You know, it it's like it, we're it feels like we're at, you know, crossroads or or this cusp of something bigger that's going to happen. What are your feelings, David? Well,
3: all change, and I've been through uh, movements uh, starting with the uh, civil rights and anti-war movements. I really am old, uh, as Grover Cleveland and I used to talk about it all the time. But it's just it's it's hard to, uh, and, and it's funny you can't even make Grover Cleveland jokes anymore because it's too old. <laughs> the, the, the The truth is that it, it, all change is uh, a series of. A, a step forward, uh, a, perhaps a half step back, several side paths. It, nothing is linear in, in change in, in our culture. So I look at this, Michelle, as, as a transformational moment with the Supreme Court decision, certainly extraordinary, historic, uh, something I never expected to see in my lifetime. But at the same time, I realize that that's what happened when Congress passed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act uh, in in the 60s, which the Supreme Court is rolling back at the same time. So rights, one, have to be preserved, and they are not, it it, it isn't locked in stone any more than women's rights. Uh, You talk about pay equity. I look at choice, Mm -hmm. and I see now that polling numbers show that more and more people are not, pro-choice, something that, that we thought was settled with Roe v. Wade. It, it, it is not settled. It's a continuum. And there's an ebb and flow in, in all of our history. And that's what playing gay is, is, I hope, if we achieve anything, is going to remind people, particularly younger folk, that everything you have came at a price and don't expect it to last unless you fight for it.
4: I, I want to ask you about you know since we're talking about television and obviously news is still a you know heavily tuned in um, you know shows or content that people tune into for television. And the way that they report on gay lives or LGBTQ lives today, you still have major networks who, you know, will report on trans issues and make it seem like it's like this is it's a science experiment or something like that. Um, Do you think that that will ever change? I mean, given that some of these major news networks are also owned by huge conservative corporations?
3: I think it will change generationally the way opposition to marriage equality changed. Uh, you see still a majority of Republicans, and I do. Uh, I will take issue with one thing you said about the polling data that shows uh, good things uh, now for LGBTQ people in, in the wake of the Supreme Court and where we are today. There's actually a, a poll out that just, just hit that shows there are still a lot of people, in fact a majority of people, mm-hmm. who believe that if you have a religious objection, to granting a marriage license, Meri- uh, religious freedom should come before uh, civil liberties and marriage equality. That, that, that's a shocking fact that shouldn't be shocking, really, but, but it, it, we have a majority of Americans who certainly, uh, it, it, the polls would indicate, who are still troubled by the notion, and it's a false premise, of course, uh, that you have to force someone to go against their religious objections. Uh, but but that's couched that way. People still are saying, and that's how the conservatives play this. This is violating religious freedom. Uh, I w- I would make that argument of saying, well, hey, there was a time when when uh, Jewish people, Catholic people, were told they weren't uh, er, 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 eligible for the same civil rights as uh, the uh, Christian Americans. Uh, We've seen these things throughout our history, but it it continues to be a card that the right-wing plays. So to your question, do I think that the media is going to do this? Yeah, they will for a while, but as more and more older people who hold these uh, dinosaur views uh, leave us, uh, and I, I don't wish anyone ill, but as they lose control of those lovers of power, Uh, a younger generation of of people will have different values, and they'll be informed by, I hope, uh, a greater understanding of our community.
4: Before we take a break, I do have one uh, question for you, and that is the... You know, physical appearance um, that we see on television shows and also yeah, newscasts these days. I mean, we're a heavily sexualized culture here in America. And, you know, in the LGBTQ community, it's extremely diverse in size, in, you know, how we identify ourselves. Some of us are genderqueer. Um I think that it would be interesting to, to see if that will also change in regular television programming instead of, you know, the very um, binary or, or linear uh, visual of a man and a woman.
3: I, I hope it will. And, and I think that what we're seeing now, particularly with uh, the, the uh, transgender community being much more visible, in, in media and, and uh, on television, both in reality programming and, and in, uh, in, in fiction that is painting uh, real life, I think we're, we're seeing that phenomenon uh, uh, playing out. That the things, images, we never saw before. Uh, the new normal, as it were, and that, that, that's a line that's being used actually to describe uh, uh, Caitlyn Jenner's show, uh, is is constantly evolving. I think we will see many, many different types and physical types uh, uh, represented and, and that's That's devoutly to be wished. The the problem, of course, is that we're still in America. (laughs) Right,
4: right. I'm like, I don't know why someone asked me to be on television because I'm scared of presenting myself as my true self, you know, a a butch lesbian woman and Asian. I mean, that's kind of unheard of here Uh, in America.
3: (laughs) Hey, hey, I I, I remember, as I'm sure you do, Margaret Cho uh, starting out and breaking ground and and having to, to fight a lot of, Preconceptions, and she was incredible, and remains so. Uh, so, so, look—is I- 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 it easy? No. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Rachel Maddow, when she started doing television, said, "You know, I just got to tell you, I dress like a teenage boy. I always have." <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and you know, it, perhaps she she changes a little bit for for television, but she has she is who she is.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And if you if you are good at what you do as you are, as Rachel is, then that, that's what people take note of, it's what you bring to it. Uh, And uh, I, I'm a great believer in not judging books by covers.
4: David, we're going to take a quick break, but will you stick with us? I want to, I want to ask you a few more questions and also talk about some of those major television shows that probably did shape and influence the way America feels about the LGBTQ community. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue with David Bender. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in
5: to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.
1: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow. Your host on the phone with us is the incredible David Bender, who's a former uh, radio talk show host. You might have heard him from the show Ring of Fire. He's also written a ton of books, a few books I should say, and he's working on a new project, a new documentary called Playing Gay, and uh, I can't wait till it's finished. It's still in the works, and we'll also mention that Kickstarter project to help us get there. Um, but David, before the break, we talked about, yes, the progress we've made in television as far as, um, you know, coming out and having LGBTQ characters and how it Americans might today feel uh, regarding LGBTQ people. Let's talk about some of the most popular shows that have affected or, or have shaped or influenced how people feel about LGBTQ people. I feel like Glee, you know, was kind of like this turning point, especially for LGBTQ youths because it was catchy. It was great. It was fun, but also had some real authentic characters, authentic meaning, you know, LGBTQ characters.
3: I couldn't agree with you more. I am a huge fan of Glee. Uh, Glee in, in the work in progress that we have in Playing Gay. And, and again, people can go to playinggay.com to see a short reel. Uh, we, we're not yet there. Uh, and I'm hoping very soon that we're going to have an opportunity to sit down with Chris Colfer, uh, who, who had such a huge impact with his storyline. Uh, but, but in fact, it, it, all of the characters... And, and, and throughout, Ryan Murphy is to be uh, commended the uh, creator of Glee for having informed that show with his vision of a world in which there was a, a new uh, sense of awareness uh, that, that certainly didn't exist when I was growing up. I looked at that high school and thought that you know, that there's a place, even though I can't sing, uh, I'd really like to be there. Uh, and, and you're right. I think Glee had a tremendous impact uh, on, on uh, people's understanding of the LGBTQ community because everybody, everybody was represented throughout the, that show, and it was a uh, it was a touchstone for our our country. You saw people who non-members uh, of the community rooting for relationships mm-hmm. to happen. Uh, that had, that's just, uh, again, something that, that I, I looked at with wonderment to see that happen and to see all these. I went to one of, uh, you'll, you'll appreciate this, I took uh, a group of 11-year-olds to the Glee on tour uh, when the Glee cast was going around the country. It must have been about 10 uh, kids all in the 10- to 11-year range. and All of them just loved these characters, straight or gay, uh, it didn't matter. They were, it was all part of their experience of growing up, and they were as excited as they could be to be in the room with these people. And the huge arena, 20,000 people cheering, and that that had an impact for me, watching it as an adult, seeing these kids and seeing that this is always a part of their consciousness. They don't remember anything other than this.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That is how the world changes. It changes when you bring that into your living room, when you bring it into your home, and that's what television does. Mm-hmm. it comes into your home, it's different than film. You have to go somewhere to watch a movie. Most
4: of the time, right, right. Another one I want to bring up, and um, I mean, you mentioned the real world, which definitely changed or shaped kind of my perspective and views on on real people out there growing up and tuning into the real uh, the real world. But then, you know, this this thing happened where we uh, went into the lives and the homes of housewives, and then the Real Housewives franchise became what it became, and then Andy Cohen being the central figure of, you know, producing these that I, I totally feel defined and, and also um, it was like a coming out process for all the straight women who had gay male best friends.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, it, it, the, the, the so-called will and grace phenomenon,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and it, it, there's no question that that, that was an, another reflection and, as I say, reflects and affects who we are, but there is a phrase in, now in, in the literature and when you're teaching media, uh, people who teach it at a, at a college level will talk about the Will and Grace phenomenon, because Will and Grace was the first show. It, it started running in 1998, and it lasted long enough to be in syndication. So somewhere while we're having this conversation, somewhere in, in America or around the world, Will and Grace is airing. And once you hit that magic six-year mark, and a show can be on in perpetuity, then it has this ripple effect. There are people who have grown up only knowing the characters from Will and Grace as part of their landscape, part of their background, part of you know the. Even if the sound is off, they know exactly who they're seeing. And here's a woman with a this, uh, gay male best friend. uh his best friend, another gay man. We see all of this as part of the uh, leitmotif uh, or, or zeitgeist mm-hmm. of, of our time. And, and that's all since uh, the year 2000. Really, It started in 98, but really after the show left the air and went into syndication the last 10 years, it's had this huge impact.
4: Right. Right, a couple things I want to bring up, for, um, you know, while I'm discussing with you, let's turn our attention to like lesbian content. Um, you know, when you 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 have Eileen Shaken who did an incredible job with the L Word series, and then oh yes. you know it went as far as it did. I feel like. I feel like that put lesbians on the map for sure when it came to television. Um, for some reason, the real L word, though, I think was a little too much. And people didn't like seeing lesbians and women and partying and debauchery and scandals, I guess.
3: <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's it's interesting. I, I did note that phenomenon, that one, one worked uh, better than the other in terms of audience. Uh, but I applauded to uh, the L word and Queer As Folk, both Showtime programs. And Showtime uh, deserves a lot of credit for having done what it did to, to bring these images forward. Again, all of this, it's, and, and really one of the things you'll see uh, in Playing Gay, and, and I encourage people to take a look at our, our, our short reel at playinggay.com, you will see that so much of this has happened in this last 10 to 15 years. Uh, it, it was almost as if when we hit the new millennium, we hit a, a new uh, opportunity or a new uh, uh, window for Americans to view the LGBTQ community that they never uh, that didn't exist before. It, 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 something about the changing centuries also changed uh, opportunity for for us to be visible. And that, that is a phenomenon. I looked, uh, and I've actually quantified it in the film. So many of these things, almost all of them, with some exceptions, have just come in a rush in the last 10 or 15 years. Now, there is one woman who we cannot fail to mention because she truly uh, changed everything on television, and that's Ellen DeGeneres.
4: Of course. <laughs> uh, I was going to save the best for last and ask you.
3: She, you can't. I, I i mean if if there is a i don't want to overstate it but if there is a dr king to this movement uh what ellen did when she came out on on a series that had been doing very well and the network did not want her to come out she fought to do it uh 42 million people watched it uh it it was the cover of Time Magazine, and then do you know what they did? I don't know if, if you remember this, Michelle. I had forgotten it for a while and i have gone back and, and, and I'm just horrified in remembering that the, the final year of Ellen, uh, the series, they canceled the year after she came out because the ratings had declined. Now, you, the immediate sort of assumption is that they declined because people didn't like her as an out lesbian. The truth is, ABC decided that they were going to put, wait for it, a parental warning on the show.
4: Oh, my gosh.
3: They, they actually said, for mature audiences only, this is a sitcom. Nothing had changed. Uh, there, she was still not dating anyone. <laughs> it, was, it, it was astonishing. And if, if you want to drive an audience away, you put uh, something that had been a family show, and you make it a non-family show, and then you say, you see... It didn't work, uh, and that's that's really what happened. And that's the story we will tell in Playing Gay that that Ellen didn't fail; the network failed uh, Ellen, but Ellen opened the door, and and you will hear this from the cast and creators of Will and Grace, which came on the air the next year. That they they absolutely to a person will say we are here and we made it on the air only because of Ellen. And David now that's how it works
4: right right i'm so glad you brought that up and that is i think a good point to say that's why we need playing gay to to be finalized and it'll be fascinating to go back and look at you know into the four decades of lgbt characters or the coming out process and how television helped shape our feelings regarding lgbtq people um david thank you so much for joining us here today
3: Michelle, absolutely, my pleasure, and great to have you part of the Progressive Voices family, which I am proud to be a member of as well. And and I hope people will go to PlayingGay.com and help us out. This is uh, we've got twenty uh, some odd days left to. Uh, to reach our goal and we can really use the help at playinggay.com
4: you got it and we'll make sure we do our best to put that out there again it's playinggay.com and David Bender everybody uh, don't go away the Michelle Miao show continues right after this
1: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
4: Everyone has a coming out story. And, of course, I have one. I've told it here before. And so has Jax, I think, kind of, sort of. Right, Jax? I think so. (laughs) Bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. But, you know, hey, we might tell it again. Our next guest is the founder of comingout.space, which is a website that's dedicated to collecting and sharing the world's coming out stories. So let's welcome Nate to the show. Nate, welcome.
0: Hi, how are you?
4: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I am so excited about your project, coming out.space. I think it is so clever. It's so cool. And uh, it's still extremely relevant, even though, yes, we've achieved you know some progress when it comes to equality. Uh, maybe we can start by you sharing your coming out story.
2: Gosh. <laughs> um, definitely.
0: Uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, sure, we can start with that. Uh, a little background on myself. My name is Nate Warden. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I'm currently living in Toronto for work, and at the end of August, I'll be moving back to the U.S. Uh, I really liked the description you gave of the coming out website. Uh, it's very accurate. I think I probably might have drafted that sometime at some point in an email. And I, I think, yeah, it's really relevant to to um, everyone in the LGBT community currently, even though there have been some great strides for equality, um, especially just this summer in in the US. Um, But I think a lot of people still struggle with finding acceptance of themselves. People who are young who maybe live in sheltered areas don't really experience the same thing that others might in more liberal parts of the world. Um, And so I had that same issue. So growing up in a small town outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, um, I definitely faced the challenges of growing up in a conservative area, um, like a lot of strongly religious people live there, people who don't travel, people who don't have really worldly uh, worldly perspectives, uh, and I think the world of a lot of the people that I grew up with, but it was a challenge finding my own personal acceptance. And so the coming out story, I guess, like to keep it short, would be that I wasn't out in, in middle school or in high school, just, um, despite the fact that I think I really knew probably by the grade six that I was different and that I was attracted to boys. Uh, and it wasn't until I went away to college or university that I had the freedom to start uh, experimenting with those ideas a bit more and, and redefining who I was. Uh, and then I studied abroad in New Zealand for a semester and that really gave me the independence I needed to come back feeling like I had discovered a new part of myself and I was ready to tell everyone about it. Uh, and so I came back and I told my family, it didn't go particularly well and I didn't think it would, um, but in the end, it worked out fine. You know, my parents were, they wanted to be as supportive as they could, but you know, to turn it around, I had to realize that I had just changed everything that my parents knew about them being parents, about what they knew about me Uh, My brother felt more or less the same way. In the end, though, they reminded me that although this was shocking and it was a lot to handle, they still loved me and they wanted me to know that I had the support of the entire family uh, going forward. It was just an adjustment. Um, It was a challenging one, to be sure, but it was an adjustment. And, And in the end, today, my relationship with everyone in my family is actually much closer than I ever thought it could be growing up because... Uh, Now I feel free to be honest about who I am with my family, and it's appreciated
3: from both sides.
4: For those of you who are tuning in and uh, are not a part of the LGBTQ community, coming out is usually in reference to the first time, you know, a queer person or an LGBTQI person acknowledges their sexual orientation. And, you know, Nate, it's like when I'm listening to your story and, and there were different parts or phases of that coming out process. So I wanted to ask you if you have maybe the same experience I do or for those who have shared on the coming out space website that the coming out process is not. Not necessarily, you know, one time in your life. Like, you you don't just come out once. I feel like, you know, it becomes uh, coming out to not just your family and your friends and your colleagues, but then throughout the years, you find yourself coming out in various different ways. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, that's very true. I totally agree. Um, In fact, I would say that probably we have a coming out story for everyone in our lives. Um, you know, my, I happen to do it with my immediate family, my parents and my brother, all sort of in one fell swoop. But I had to come out to all of my closest friends individually. I had to come out to peers and teachers. And now that I'm a working adult, I come out to coworkers and clients, et cetera, all the time. Um, it's not something that I advertise. I don't walk around wearing a rainbow sticker or carrying a flag. And it's not always relevant to conversation, so it doesn't come up. But it is something that comes up occasionally and has to be addressed. Uh, on an ongoing basis. So while I feel like my coming out story is really when I I came out to myself and then shared it initially, um, the truth is that I and everyone else who identifies as LGBTQ still comes out all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Michelle Uh, Miao. Sorry, I was just going to add one more thought to that. that It's really interesting to me that as a community, LGBTQ folks are one of the few minorities that actually have to elect to identify itself. Um, if I if I were to live my life as a heterosexual male, uh, I could probably get away with it for the rest of my life. But instead, uh, it's interesting that we as individuals have to choose to tell people that we're different.
4: Right. Right. That is that is so true. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Nate Warden. He is the founder of a website coming out dot space, uh, which is a website that's dedicated to collecting and sharing the world's coming out stories. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, Nate, that you've chosen a website to put this all together. You know, you know, I wanted to ask you about, you know, social media, the Internet. All of this has played a uh, part or a role in an LGBTQ person's life, whether, you know, we've needed more information about who we are or you wanted to share it. You know, do you think that it is the safest way or one of the safest ways and, and relevant ways to to give exposure to our lives authentically?
0: Yeah. Can I, I'm just going to ask the question back to you to make sure I understood. Are you asking if the internet as a whole is the best place for people to learn about this?
4: Yeah, because I think that, you know, in the past, especially, you know, I don't know, I've been out for maybe 19 years now, and and, and we used to share, as queer people, we used to share coming out stories in you know, coffee shops or cafes, or um, uh, people used to call into hotlines, and, and I don't know if, um, you know, until, like, Facebook exploded or did what it did and gave us the option to identify ourselves, you know, people just, if that drove people to come out and use the Internet as a space to, to be themselves.
0: Yes, good point. So a couple of thoughts on that. I think that the, all of the forms of media that you just mentioned, be it a coffee shop or a phone line, still exist and have a relevant place. Uh, I frequently learn my friends' coming-out stories, and I love it. I actually think it's a really insightful part of their life. It helps me learn a lot about them. And that happens often over a cocktail or over a uh, coffee, and I think that's great. That's That's an important part of individual relationships. A problem with that is that it's not really scalable and not entirely beneficial to the broader community. And so what I'm trying to do with their website is take all of those stories that happen very personally in quiet places and archive them. Because some of the stories that you might have heard over the course of the last 19 years are probably really interesting to me or to other people who have had similar or are going through similar things. Uh, And the goal is to have them written down, and not only written down and put online, but organized in a very efficient way so that someone could find that story and identify with it. So for example, someone who might identify with my story, maybe they're growing up in a small town in another Midwestern state, their parents are a little bit religious, maybe their brother or sister is really into athletics and they feel like they're just like the oddball out in the family. Someone would read my coming out story and feel like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm totally in the same boat. I get it. This guy went through the same thing. That helps me um, know that things can work out if I just get the courage up to, to do what I know I need to do."
4: I wanted to ask you really quick, and you know, this uh, this is great what you're doing, but I know that there are still a lot of people who are closeted and uh, will stay that way, especially you know, closeted people who are involved in organizations or politics, um, or corporations or businesses, you know, who don't want to affect their career or for whatever reason it is. And you know, kind of do you think that, you know, that will decline more and more over time as we have projects like yours like like coming out dot space that shows that, you know, this is positive, this is great?
0: I sure hope so. Um, I think the, that's, that's all we can hope for. A lot of people do find that being openly LGBTQ is a detriment to what other personal life or the professional life. I think it, it definitely at this point depends on the sort of career you're in. I know that for me, I work in professional services and it's an industry that has come a long way um, in the past few decades and other industries like consulting professional services in general um, and a lot of other private ones and public sector ones are very pro-diversity these days And so I actually view my status as a gay man to be a pretty strong asset professionally um, But it's pretty crazy that you can say that considering just like 10 or 10-15 years ago That wouldn't mm-hmm. have been the case, right? So I think we'll continue. I think we'll continue to see that I think certain um, sectors will move slower than others certainly political sector probably will be the slowest to move
4: What are your thoughts? Like, you know, there's been some criticism in terms of the LGBTQI community that the older generation or those who were involved in, you know, the gay liberation movement or lived through that time and who are now out now, um, you know, aren't really doing much to serve the youths or LGBTQI youths, I see coming out. Dot space as a great space, especially for the youths um, in our community. Are you seeing a good number of young people coming to the site to share their coming out story?
0: Uh, inter- yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Uh, it's not one that I hear very often. I think maybe older people aren't doing the things that young people want them to do, like making websites, because that's kind of a young person thing to do. But in terms of the, the service they've given to the community, I mean, they've paved the way to get to where we are now. I probably wouldn't have felt comfortable putting a website to like, like this together and putting my name on it, my face on it, if it weren't for the thousands of people who have come before me and, and done really meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yeah, they do they're contributing in a way that we maybe can't see. But to answer your other half of your question, yes, the website is much more popular with young people simply because at this point, most of the awareness is done through social media. Um, I'm working on public media outreach, things like I'm doing right now to help get the word out and other forms of media. Uh, I'll also be starting some um, online blogging, um, specifically through pride.com and the Huffington Post blog via Gay Voices. So. I'm hoping that the reach will continue, continue to expand beyond social media, but it's it's early in the life of the project.
4: And, you know, this is probably a hard question for you. It's my last question for you, but um, through the thousands of submissions, do you have a favorite?
0: Well, I don't have thousands yet. It's, the, the website is young. I would love to have thousands of submissions. <laughs> um, but do I have a favorite? I think um, this is a recurring question. I don't know that I have a favorite, but I do, I've, I've been asked um, – what are some of the key learnings or what do you see in common among the stories? And so I've thought about that. And also one story that that comes to mind, so I'll highlight both. I think some of the commonalities amongst the stories is that people struggle with this for a long time, usually years. Um, And sometimes people go through, through very dark stages in their life before they come out to the other side and realize that they need to make a change in their life in order to be really happy. And, the, the commonality I've seen across a lot of the stories is that people, even though it might be hard or maybe things get a little bit worse in the short term, in the long term, they're really, really happy that they made the choice to live an honest and full life. Um, so that's a commonality amongst most of the stories. Uh, one that comes to mind as being particularly interesting or a favorite was written by a trans man, someone I actually know here in Toronto, and he wrote about his common struggle, even being out of his queer identity and and his sexual um, preferences, that he struggles constantly to be seen as a heterosexual man and not a butch lesbian. Mm
4: -hmm. Uh,
0: And so that was really interesting to me because no one questions my gender identity. Everyone looks at me and thinks I look like a boy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I really only had to sort of come out halfway really interesting to me to think about the trans community and how they have to fight for just a simple, I guess, like a simple pronoun usage, for example. Right. Uh, so That was a really interesting story for me, something that I haven't lived personally, but I enjoyed learning about.
4: Well, what I love about it is, you know, we all can learn something about each other, but then learn, you know, great things about ourselves as well. And it's just like, it's more than, you know, coming out and accepting, but it's a learning process as uh, as well. Uh, Nate Warden, he is the founder of comingout.space. Make sure you check it out and if you would like to share your coming out story, you should definitely participate in uh, comingout.space. Nate, thank you so much for joining us here on the program.
0: Thanks, you guys. Have a great day.
4: The Michelle Mial Show continues right after this.
1: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back! Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our next guest is the Executive Director of Rainbow Day Camp, and Rainbow Day Camp is special in a lot of ways uh, because it's one of its it's one of a kind. Actually, really, Uh, it's a camp that specializes in uh, providing programs for gender-variant children and transgender youth. So I'm very excited to welcome you to Sandra Collins. Sandra, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Michelle. Yes, no, absolutely. I am excited to speak with you. I think that what Rainbow Day Camp is doing is just so special. It's so unique, so new. Uh, Tell us all about Rainbow Day Camp.
2: So we are launching our first camp this summer, so I'm both excited and extremely scared because we've not done this before, but we have a great program, um, camp director, A.K. Kramer, who's been doing this for years um, with Camp Galileo, so in that sense, I'm really confident, but we're going to be opening um, on June 22nd, so it's a two-week program. It's our pilot year, so next summer, it might be going longer, and we've got about 25 families joining us from all over the Bay Area, ranging in ages from five. To about um, 17, we'll have a youth program, and then we'll also have a teen program. Um, the youth program will stay at the school at Prospect Sierra School, who's partnering with us, um, and then the teen program will be traveling all over the Bay Area, going to A's game or doing um, sort of takeovers um, at local cafes or going over to the Japanese tea Garden. So, we're really excited about providing a safe space um, for gender-diverse youth, um, but also allowing the youth to be sort of their authentic selves um, and providing also jobs for um, transgender and gender-queer um, teens and um, college students. So, that's also been a real um, important priority for me as well.
4: I. Um- um, I I mean I'm I'm thinking you know the the huge role you play and this is probably to me, at least, you know, you you're like a hero. <laughs> it's just oh. so incredible and great uh, what you're doing, Michelle Miao. We're speaking with Sandra Collins. She is the executive director of Rainbow Day Camp, and uh, we mentioned that the the day camp is right here in the Bay Area. It's in the East Bay, in fact. Um, you know, and which I, I kind of want to talk about that when we look at you know location, right? One would think that a, a good location for a day camp like this might be somewhere near, you know, closer to San Francisco or whatnot. Uh, but I, I actually think the East Bay is a perfect location.
2: Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm totally East Bay girl.
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, well, yeah, and it's like, uh, and and we know that you know there are the many families on the the East side of that bridge, um, but uh, also very diverse families. So I'm guessing you know the the day camp probably sees an incredible, you know, uh, range of all kinds of families, right?
2: Right. And we um, are really committed to financial aid. So we have, um, you know, to be honest, we have some some youth that are are in the foster care system. And so for me, it's been a real priority to have scholarships. And I've been fundraising, um, like, like anything, um, to make it um, across, um, you know, different ethnic groups, um, different, you know, social economic status um, to really make it diverse. Um, it's not as diverse as i like it to be, but it's our first um, year. And so going forward, um, I'd like it to, you know, to build a bigger base. Um, but it's our pilot year. So I think um, I heard Ashanti Branch talk <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, you know, all I can do is all I can do, and all I can do is enough. But it's been a great mantra about how do you build these grassroots movements. And I think that what I like to do going forward is really bring the message about, you know, gender diversity Um you know, not just benefiting, you know, gender-diverse kids and transgender kids, but all children. The more that we can sort of loosen up these boxes about um, gender for all children back into the community, right, so that children who are on the spectrum, that, you know, it's not just about... Um, you know, these hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine boxes, that there are kids who want to be able to express themselves all along the gender spectrum, um, because I know that there are boys who feel, you know, on the masculine side, who want to be more emotional, but feel like they have to be sort Mm -hmm. of tough, you know, um, sporty boys, but but they don't necessarily want to express themselves that way. Um, So the more that we can loosen up gender for everybody, everyone in our society can benefit, and this I've watched the film, The Mask We Live In, and I think that that's sort of what the camp is about, too. It's about creating safe spaces for gender diverse youth, but it's also about the larger message about gender overall in our society how everybody is kind of losing out when we sort of create these really strict boxes for gender. So, how do we, as a community, have these really explicit conversations about gender so that everybody can benefit? Um, not just for our gender diverse youth, but for all children and all youth um and and that's sort of where I feel like as a community, we need to sort of rally for our kids overall um, and and that would be great so how do we have conversations for our community and how do we bring these messages back into our community right. um, because you know sometimes these messages get taught in our schools, but how do you know for the most part um how do we create educational systems outside of the schools.
4: How do we, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're saying this and I'm looking back at my own childhood. And uh, I I mean, I had to redo years of damage of, you know, just being bullied or, or even from adults or parents who, who th- who made me into, you know, who checked me into a box. I didn't like wearing dresses. I didn't like, right. you know, doing any of those stuff. And then I get become an adult. And I, re- I just realized, you said something that was kind of powerful to me just now, that I realized that, you know, I learned to hate myself and my body and being yeah. a girl. You know, at such a young age, and it took me until, I think, 31 years. At th- My 31st oh, birthday oh, was when I finally was like, you know what? The Bajigallies and the curves and these khakis and my you know <laughs> sweater vests, they work for me. They're wonderful, right
2: right. <laughs> I right. slightly butch right. and I, I you know, I'm exactly, and sort of i I realized like I was kind of butch um but i you know i'm kind of i heterosexual but i i realized like i was not a dressy girl but my mom put me in dresses and it wasn't until like in my 20s and 30s that i realized like i'm actually kind of more masculine sometimes mm-hmm. like i don't really like to wear dresses unless i actually have to <laughs> you know right. right like where do we learn how to educate ourselves around gender and identity and expression and sexual orientation once we leave College right and um as in terms of how do we do civic education, um, and that's kind of the next step for me is about how do we bring these messages back to the community um, in terms of other adults who have influence on children um, because that's you know that those people who are influencing um, our youth lives that's the next step because they're really powerful um because the children know who they are, and they're perfect just the way they are. Mm-hmm. has such a huge influence on these children's lives um, that that's sort of the next step. and Or even the young adults, right? Um, you don't want to hate yourself, but you have that, you know what I mean? It's like how do you yeah. come into your own self-love and self-care in a way that shouldn't be damaging? Um,
4: yeah, I told my mom the other day. It was like, you know, as a young teenager, she told me that I gave her a hard time, you know, as a female teenager i said i probably wouldn't have been so mean if you just let me be and let me do, you know be who i wanted to be um sandra i love what you're doing and thank you so much for joining us here today to talk about rainbow day camp um uh, you know for for those out there rainbow day camp is a nonprofit. this is their first year so if you what you heard today obviously is incredible so if you want to support them visit rainbowdaycamp.org Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Meow Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.